Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and it's early June, dear listeners. And you know what that means. It means kids are out of school and on the East Coast anyway. They're heading to rural Tennessee for the Bonnaroo Music Festival. Let's bring in the man that has a set scheduled between Cheryl Crow and Bass Nectar. What, Mr. Jim Hill? Jim, how's it going? Mm, I can't get my didgeridoo on the plane. <laughs> man. <laughs> the, the noise of those things is a weapon unto itself, James. My daughter's going to Bonnaroo this year, and you know she described it as four days of loud music and no showers. And <laughs> I mean... James, I'm as liberal as they come, mm-hmm. right? I look at things like that, and I just, I want to say, get a shower and a job, kids. That's, <laughs> it's just, it's not my thing. <laughs> All y'all listen to this hippie music. <laughs> Take a shower, find a job. <laughs> it's weird. I just, I find myself channeling that voice. You kids, get off my lawn. <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. What happened? I used to be fun. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened to me? <laughs> Oh, Lord. Anyway, Jim, a big announcement yesterday from Disney, a minor announcement from Disney yesterday that they've firmed up the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opening dates to be, quote, summer 2019 for Disneyland and, quote, late fall 2019 for Walt Disney World. I will uh, caution our readers by noting that late fall is technically December 21st. Yes. 2019 yes. in Walt Disney World. And late summer is what? September? Mm. June, July, July, August. Yeah, late September. September yeah. 20th, 21st. Yeah. So those are the time frames that we're looking at there. Now, realistically, though, you and I have been talking about this for months now. You've said that December 31st is still in 2019 for two years, mm. Jim, for Walt Disney World. Yeah. Here's the thing that I'm a little surprised at. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's... Arguably the single largest or most anticipated opening in Orlando for Disney since the Animal Kingdom in 1998. So more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. You're going to open it the week of Christmas, the most crowded time of year. It's like saying, I'm going to learn how to drive, but I'm going to do it during the Daytona 500 between an Earnhardt and a Petty, because what could possibly go wrong there? Well, look, if you, if you talk with folks at Walt Disney World about this. One of the things they say right off the bat is that what's not being discussed here is that they do need to frankly do some work out ahead of the Star Wars Hotel that it's not just the wet spring. There is this secondary issue and Bob Chapek has fast-tracked the hotel because he Mm -hmm. wants to potentially walk this concept around the globe. And so it's it's crucial that it get done and get done right. But at the same time, Walt Disney World is perfectly happy to let Disneyland take the lead on this because there are so many things related to Galaxy's Edge that Disney has never done in a theme park before. And between line management, how long right. people are actually going to spend in Batu wandering around, exploring things. Disney World would love to let Anaheim make all the mistakes. So as you say, opening in the Christmas window or in that space, mm-hmm. especially with the ridiculous crowds, Never mind the fact that, remember, that Walt Disney World only has two entrances to this thing, where Disneyland actually has three, so a lot of moving parts. Well, I'm told, though, in Disneyland, the three entrances that you're thinking about are the Big Thunder Ranch area, the Fantasyland entrance, and then Critter Country, right? Yeah, they're trying to 
roll out some different designations for these things. Yeah, so that's what I've heard. In Disneyland, it's going to be the Big Thunder Ranch and Fantasyland entrances basically combined into one as the entryway into Galaxy's Edge and Critter Country dedicated to the exit. So it'll be a one-way through, one-way street going through Galaxy's Edge. And that is strictly for crowd control. And and the reason why we heard of this is we're trying to model what the crowds are going to be like in that area around Disneyland for when the Galaxy's Edge opens. And that's what we've heard. It seems to make sense, too, because you don't want people lining up on both sides of those walkways because then the traffic flow traffic flow to get out would be would be impeded. So if you've got one way in and one way out dedicated, it's just like they do for parades. It makes um, sense. No, but you have to understand that I've spoken with the Imagineers who designed this thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. for example, the time, money, and effort that was put into, for example, the Resistance attraction. That was designed as an entrance. You were supposed to come through the Critter Country Forest, wander through the forest, and then find the Resistance. I mean, they're building five full-size X-Wings that are parked out in the woods. And again, you're supposed to discover them. And then they're supposed to interact with the pilots, and they're supposed to suggest you go over to get on the transport that's going up to the Death Star. And the notion that now the only way you find that is that you come in the Fantasyland or the Big Thunder way. Oh, God. You know, it means people... Well, but it's, it's probably temporary for the first, you know, year or two that it's open. I and then hope eventually so. you'll be able... I think similarly in the studios, it looks like the way that they're designing the entrance is going to be you go down by the Star Tours ride and mm-hmm. come up through there and then exit through Toy Story Land. I don't see the Toy Story Land passageway to Galaxy's Edge as the, quote, main entrance And although to your point, that looks to be foresty as well. So maybe I'm completely backwards on that. I would almost buy in with that version because, again, what concerns me is if you send people through the top, through the spaceport portion of Batuu, there are going to be people who literally run through the village to get down to that ride. And then they're going to double back up and try to to get into the Millennium Falcon thing. And, And I mean... I feel like we should start apologizing for people to people right now about what the guest experience is going to be with this thing during those first couple of years. Well, here's the thing that Bob Selinger and I are talking about mm-hmm. because of we're writing the 2019 unofficial guide and we've, we've got to start planning for this. And the question that we had is this. You read the latest themed entertainment association report about attendance at Disney theme parks in 2017. The Animal Kingdom was up. 15% mm-hmm. for the entire year, yep. even though Pandora was only open basically seven months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So if Pandora, which again, frankly, a movie not many people truly cared about in, mm-hmm. in the same way that Star Wars, they care about Star Wars. If Pandora got the Animal Kingdom a 25 to 30% boost for over an entire year, what is Star Wars going to do to Hollywood studios. I mean, 25% is the bare minimum. I'm thinking like 40% increase. And here's where I'm going with that. Yeah. Where are these people going to line up in the morning to get into the park when it's 40% more people? Because I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you've heard the stories about people lining up for Pandora at 5 a.m. so they don't have to wait three hours in line. Mm-hmm. If they're waiting in line starting at 5 a.m., for Pandora, they're going to camp out all night or at least as late as Disney lets them mm-hmm. for Star Wars land. And what's the plan for that? Because you know, whatever Disney says, if Disney says, look, you're not, we're not going to let anybody camp overnight in the studios, that's fine. What if they decide to camp out on the walkway along the Epcot resorts to the studios? I mean, wherever Disney puts the barrier 
wherever Disney says you can't go past this point, the tents will be five yards past that. <laughs> it's true. We all know it's true, right? Yeah. We saw when Harry Potter opened at Universal, there was a 10-hour line to get into the park. Yep. This could be the same thing here, right? And it's going to be the same thing here for a month. What are you going to do with the people? Where are they going? And I would love to hear the uh, the plan for that. Let me tell you one thing that was told to me that for the first month, possibly the first two months, the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is open, they're going to suspend operations of Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular because you then have a covered space where you can put upwards of 2,500 people per show. Mm -hmm. You can put other entertainment in there to keep people occupied while they're waiting. Oh, yeah. Because right now... Oh, I'm thinking that every show that exists in the studios, anywhere that there's a free stage, they're going to be running 8 to 10 shows a day. Mm-hmm of those things just to boost the capacity of the park, no? You will see that happen, but right now, where people are supposed to queue up is that wide street between the entrance to the Muppet Studios and then New Tapas Restaurant. That's where supposedly the initial chain of queue that's supposed to hold people is. But okay. if you have thousands of other people waiting and to get them out of the park, and more to the point, you can take the bodies that run the stunt show and for a couple of months, you can throw them into Batu. You can yeah. get them in there. And then hopefully in the fall, when demand slides away. And remember, you know, that we're also talking mm. about a Disney World version of this opening in the fall of, of 2019. This is really going to be a learn as you go, Len. I'm quite serious about the fact that Walt Disney World will have people out in Anaheim just standing in the streets. Oh, <laughs> taking, taking notes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, okay, but don't let them line up there. And just going from there, trying to make the adjustments, because you aren't wrong about them expecting a Harry Potter-sized response, if not bigger. Oh, it's, it's got to happen. And again, for them to open it towards the beginning of the single busiest time of year mm -hmm. is bold. It's, it's, it's unfortunate timing. I, I think that, uh, that Disney would have preferred to open it at any time of year other than that, but but let's see what happens. There you go. Speaking of Star Wars, two new patents that Disney filed in late May have come up. Remember back in November when we did our Disney Dish Live event, we mm -hmm. presented a couple of patents that indicated that Disney was trying to work on building an actual lightsaber for its escape ride in Galaxy's Edge. Do you remember that? Yep, yep. On May 17th, they filed another patent that is, again, the clearest indication yet that they're trying to build a, a working lightsaber. The patent was published on the May 17th. It was filed by Disney back in 2016, late 2016. It's uh, publication number US 2018-01376801A1. It's called Augmented Reality Interactive Experience. If you look at the images, James, for the first couple of pages mm -hmm. of this, it's just a bunch of flowcharts and boxes. You get to page three. It's either the world's most Star Wars looking vaping device, or it's a lightsaber, is it not, James? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the world's most powerful laser pointer, Len. Come on. <laughs> you kids pay attention in class. I mean it. Yeah, but clearly they're working on a lightsaber. Now, the interesting part of this is that they mention augmented reality. And by augmented reality, if you're familiar with the term, it means this you're looking out through a piece of glass or a piece of plastic, sort of like a helmet with a visor. And you see not only what is in real life, what exists in real life in front of you, 
but augmented or projected on top of that, sort of like the castle projection show in a way, mm-hmm. you get animation or digital effects. And it looks like what they're trying to do here is to use that screen on your helmet, which will obviously have some very powerful computers on it, to project out what the lightsaber looks like as you're carrying it. So they're going to use the screen on the helmet as the movie screen, if you will, for the lightsaber effect. What do you make of this, Jim? We have known from 1977 going forward what the Star Wars world looks like and more to the fact what a lightsaber does. Yeah. So they want to do, you know, genuinely deliver on this experience. Given what a guest satisfier these projection shows have been in the parks, it's really not that much of a leap to go from satisfying a crowd of three to 5,000 people in front of the castle to, you know, just making, you know, a person who's seeing just this inside of their helmet happening to them. It's a smart play. But what concerns me is that when it's this much technology, this much computer power mm-hmm. happening to an individual, what happens when this goes belly up? Is there enough of this experience that if the effects in your helmet aren't working, it's still a good time? It's still you know worth spending five hours in line? I think it'd be f- fundamental to the experience to have the lightsaber work. They did mention in the patent, though, that instead of a lightsaber... You could have a blaster, like a toy gun, okay. that would work the same way. So that okay. might be easier. The thing that I'm, I'm interested in seeing is how multiple players will see each other's accessories. So like if you, you're wielding a lightsaber, how will the rendering of that on my visor, my screen, look? They're doing something similar to this with the Secrets of the Empire Star Wars game. I was about to say The Void. The Void, yeah. You had talked with such enthusiasm. About, about oh, it's about- it's fantastic. It's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I've joked that if I was 20 years younger, I would completely change uh, you know my company touring plans into doing virtual reality stuff and Westworld <laughs> hosts. It's that exciting to me. Wow. But the um, when I was playing The Void, uh, Secrets of the Empire, I did notice that there was a it's perceptible, but it's minimal, a lag mm-hmm. in what the other player, when the other players would move around. There was just that fraction of a second delay in seeing it rendered on my visor, mm-hmm. you know, when it happened. And the reason I know is when I was moving my own hand, there was a just barely perceptible delay mm-hmm. in what I saw. And the same thing with the other players. The Void is using some reasonably powerful desktop graphics processors. It's NVIDIA. I believe 980s. So they're they're not bad. Between now and the time that Star Wars opens, you'll see the graphics power doubling mm. on many of these machines. So that might be enough for this to work, but that I think is going to be the key to to seeing this implemented successfully. Got it. The other thing, and you knew this was coming, James, the mm. other patent that was filed on the same day, it's a system and method for recording what you see on your augmented reality visor and selling it back to you afterwards as a movie. (laughs) You knew it was coming, Jim. You knew it was coming. (laughs) So as you're fighting through the escape ride or you're fighting your way on the Millennium Falcon or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever you see in your visor, they will sell back to you with the audio as a movie. I I think it's just, A, it's genius. B, the scene I envision is, you know, in the Donald Duck cartoons, the comics, where Scrooge McDuck dives into a pot of a room full of money mm-hmm. at the end of most of the comics. I'm like, I'm thinking, how big is that room going to be for Disney when they start selling these things? I remember talking 
with the guys who did the superstar television show for the studios back in 89. They were grabbing the rights to clips till three weeks out from the opening. These were all fly-by-night deals and, okay, hey, we got the bonanzas, you know, we, we got the studios. But nobody ever thought that, oh, and while we're doing this, we should also secure the rights to sell the same footage at the theme parks. And as a result, evidently after every show, remember how we used to come out to the, the left of Superstar Television and sort of be dumped into the temporary kind of gift shop next to the Sound Dangerous thing? And they'd have 20 to 25 people per show go up to the register and it's like, we can buy this, right? And my family member was just in this. It's like, no, we don't have the rights. And it's, it <sighs> said they, they estimated... $5 million a year just literally walked yeah. out the door because they didn't secure these rights. And Universal with the, for example, the Ollivander Wand experience, same thing. They have a lot of parents ask, oh, that was wonderful and my child's going to buy the wand. Is there Was there a way to record this? And it's like, well, no, we didn't have the rights and more to the point because of the discrete lighting effects and that sort of thing. It, it never would have worked. And so they identified this revenue stream very, very, very <laughs> early. It's as you would expect, yeah. as one expects. And it's like, you know, again, when you're spending $600 million on both coasts to do this, you're going to want that money back. But at the same time, it's just this whole notion of it adds that secondary layer of is somebody actually going to review this, the footage before it's released? We talked about this new mechanical learning AI stuff that Disney is doing and is some machine going to be taught like, well, he's making an odd gesture. I don't think we should let this visor footage out there. Possibly, but I think that's something that'll happen later on. Okay. But yeah, I, I see the point of having to do that. It, it's just fascinating to me that they're already thinking about how we're going to sell the video. And it, it makes complete sense, right? Because you're, oh, you're rendering the scene on the visor. You mm -hmm. might as well send the same data to another computer somewhere else and have it render the scene for sale later on. And remember, if we're talking generationally here, we have this entire group of kids who have grown up with phones where, honestly, if there aren't pictures, it didn't happen. And so right. if you're going to come back from Disney World and talk about your wonderful, I was a member of the Resistance experience, it's like, well, can I see it? You know, what have you got? And it's like, yeah. well, well, here's what I paid for. <laughs> Here's what I waited 10 hours in line for. All right, James, during our break, I want you to think about this. I know the studios is getting a lot of love between now and the end of 2019. Uh, what about the world's greatest theme park, Epcot? I understand there is some land clearing behind World Showcase. It's happening right now. Maybe we should discuss this, but let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about that. How's that sound? All right, we'll be back, folks. And we're back. All right, Jim. Let's talk about what's going on again at the world's greatest theme park, Epcot. Our friends over at WDW Magic have posted a photo, an aerial photo, by I believe one Mr. BioReconstruct, who took a photo of some land clearing happening directly behind the Japan Pavilion of World Showcase. I'm guessing this is not... Jim, the Mount Fuji roller coaster? No, would that it, it, it could be. But if you actually looked dead on straight down, the site does start behind the Japanese pavilion, but also continues on closer to the American pavilion. Right. It is centrally located. You're right. Okay. But what's more important is how close this area that's being cleared is to 
the Reedy Creek Improvement District Fire Station that's right there on Buena Vista. Oh, right. It is almost directly behind the far end of the Japan Pavilion, right? It's it's right there. So when these images came out, I got on the phone and got a hold of a friend at Walt Disney World who said, yep, the reason they're clearing this land is because they wished they had had this sort of setup in 2016 when they did the Starbright Holidays show. Oh, the drones over at Disney Springs. Yes, okay, because remember when they staged that show, they did it out by Saratoga Springs, and it was problematic. (laughs) It was problematic in that half a dozen of the drones would end up in the lake after every show, and you could watch the boats with the skimmers go and try and pick them up like that? Yeah. (laughs) Now, we've got a giant redo of Illuminations coming. One of the components of the show that they desperately want to make use of is drone technology. Now, remember, when they initially filed the patents back in August of 2014, then they showed examples of potential flight paths and that sort of thing. They showed the drones coming in over basically the Odyssey restaurant and over that body of water there and then out between those two shops and out over the thing. And obviously the hard lesson that was learned from the Starlight show is that, hey, water confuses them, or at least that iteration of them. Evidently, Disney legal pushed back in a big way because it's like, do you realize how many people are standing between, say, the Mexico Pavilion and that sort of walkway you can take to take you straight towards Spaceship Earth? Yeah, that's the issue, right? The issue is, even if these drones are 99.99% reliable, Mm -hmm. there are so many drones running every night that once a month one of them will fall from the sky Mm -hmm. right and they're by the way they're not 99.99 percent reliable right but that's the issue and if they fall they fall on a guest that would not be good show yeah so what they envision doing is they've got that sort of rooftop that's over the american gardens theater they have Mm -hmm. that giant space of walkway between the theater and the American Adventure. And evidently, mm-hmm. the what the plan would be now is in the five to ten minutes before the show launches, they literally restrict guest traffic. This will affect the operation of American Adventure rather than I think that they'll stop doing a presentation of the show at, say, 8 o'clock, so by 8.30. Yeah, that's fine. And what they'll do is they'll shut down this space so that when the drones fly over, it's not possible for them to hit a guest that go out to the water, perform, and then come back the same path and and land in this new space that's being created out back that's also going to feature power stations, you know, where Mm -hmm. they can be charging up the thing. I mean, there's a whole dedicated facility that you need to do this sort of show. It's it's kind of the equivalent of if, say, you look out back behind the Magic Kingdom, there are all of the parade float barns that you need support space to have a parade. If you're going to do this drone thing at Epcot, you need a, a space for it. And what's particularly interesting is that Disney Legal insisted that if they were going to build this thing, it had to be as close to the fire station as possible in the event that, say, one of these things started smoking on the pad. The problem is we have all of this information about Mm -hmm. the new show, how it's character-driven, how we we have a Illuminations window on the world or window to the world, depending on who you talk to, the title for the show. We still don't have a date. And looking at the amount of construction or the site prep that's being done on this this chunk of land, I have to assume we're going to start seeing at least rehearsals next year. I would think so, wouldn't you? 
I'm hopeful, but just in what we've learned in this past week between suddenly with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge being pushed into the fall. And remember, that was supposed to be driving attendance in at least some of the summer. So you wonder if this will get moved up to sort of fill that hole because Universal isn't behind schedule on its new Harry Potter coaster and they'll be perfectly happy to open that in the summer of 2019. Well, I think the studios will open Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway in 2019. And that's, I mean, it's not being looked forward to the same way that Galaxy's Edge is, but still it's a, it'll be good attraction. That's a good point. That's a good point. 2,000 people. The thing that I was looking at when you were talking about the the position of this land Mm -hmm. relative to Epcot is how that interacts with the new gondola Mm -hmm. line. But it looks like the gondola line is positioned in a way that it would be the very back of that piece of property. Mm -hmm. What I was questioning there is whether, you know, as these drones were taking off and landing, whether there would be any sort of interference with the cable lines for the new Skyway gondolas, but it looks like there's not. Time and again, Disney keeps hammering on them about, do we just need a path that is guest-free, at least temporarily, for, for launch and return? Yet if you actually look at the path for the gondolas, yes, it's at the outside edge of this but yeah. you have guests inside of sealed compartments. All right, but that's what, so we think it's, uh, it's for drones. All right, and speaking of uh, things flying around the theme parks, uh, you have a story about something called the Tinker Bellicopter, oh, which I've, I've never heard of. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this in the past, about how this whole idea of having controlled flight vehicles in Disney nighttime shows isn't a new idea, that it actually dates back to the late 1970s and mm-hmm. came across this gold mine of information about this project that almost happened. That, that basically what happened in, in January of 1977, when they shut down mine train through nature's wonderland in Frontierland to make way for Big Thunder, that negatively impacted the Tinkerbell flight, how Disneyland started its fireworks every night. That performer who was playing Tinkerbell would jump off of the Matterhorn on a wire and then slide down behind the castle. And then in a water tower that had been set up in Frontierland as part of Mine Train to Nature's Wonderland, there'd be these two burly guys holding up a mattress and Tinkerbell would fly into it and end her flight. But of course, when all that stuff got pulled down so that Mine Train to Nature's Wonderland could become Big Thunder Mountain Railway, Suddenly, a part of what had made people had loved about Disneyland's nighttime presentation was gone because there was no place for Tinkerbell to land now. So the guys in R&D start working on the idea, well, what if we create a mechanical Tinkerbell? And what they envisioned was taking a remote control, a helicopter, a radio-controlled outfit, and hot Mm -hmm. gluing it basically to the clear acrylic underbody that a lot of the animatronic figures have. They, they were going to pick a one that was used for the Alice figure in the Mickey Mouse review attraction for Walt Disney World. It was, it was just the right height female figure and then they fill it with Christmas lights. So they hot glue the helicopter in the back of it and they actually begin testing it in February of 1979. And what's funny is, of course, at, at this point, 
given what it is, the, the name of the project then becomes the Tinker Bellicopter because, again, <laughs> this is what you did. And so what they ended up with was this five-foot-tall figure that okay. ended up weighing just 12 to 15 pounds, depending on the number of lights that were inside of it. And what they initially envisioned doing was that they would launch it from atop Small World in Fantasyland. And then there was a a field. It's where the uh, Fantasyland Theater now, where the, the Mickey and the Magical Map show is presented. Mm -hmm. This was an undeveloped field at that point. But the idea was that you fly the figure off of Small World. You have it fly back and forth at a distance behind the castle. And then you bring it back into Small World for a landing. And they got far enough along with this idea they brought it to Disneyland, did a couple of tests at night. They did a lot of test flying of it in the Wed Maple parking lot. Sadly, what ended up happening was that Disney legal because of the whole notion of you can't fly this over guests. I mean, the first route that they set up it had it flying off of the Carousel of Progress. Oh, well, at this point, that was the American Sings attraction. But they fly it off of the roof of there and then fly it over the castle and, and have it do a couple of loops and th then come back. And the idea is that you could use part of the remote control to shut down the lights inside of the figure. Sure. But again, the lawyers put the kibosh on that. So that's why they defaulted to the, all right, we'll fly off of the small world roof and we'll fly back and forth in the meadow. And in the end, it was just legal was... You cannot do this. You are putting guests at risk. And again, I have to caution people who are excited about this Epcot drone show that yeah. remember that the Starbright holiday show at Disney Springs did not come back last year. And one of the reasons was that, you know, the very thing you were talking about earlier, the drones following in the water or the, the drones that would be doing the exact pattern, but like 15, 20 feet away from everybody else. Yeah. The Christmas tree with the one branch that was uh, 50 feet longer than, but in perfect synchronicity, it was one of those glitches in technology that is still beautiful to watch. It was really nice. Absolutely. Yeah. And anybody who's seen the Super Bowl or the Olympics has seen these displays and they are wonderful, but it's, it's one thing to do this once. Mm -hmm. That was the thing of the Starlight Show where, you know, they had a 7 p.m. show and an 8.30 show, and they found they just couldn't do it. And I'm encouraged to see them prepping the airspace, but I have to caution people that in much the same way that there was supposed to be that whole fleet of lanterns that the Rivers of Light show over at this Disney's Animal Kingdom that <laughs> never made it I out of rehearsal. <laughs> I always forget now about uh, about Rivers of Light, but yeah, that's the cautionary tale of uh, Disney technology, right? There you go. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher or, you know, the next time you're called to testify in front of the European Union, give them a review of our show and tell them what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>